Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 43, the book of Acts, chapter 19. Okay, we just got started in chapter 19 of Acts last week when we ran out of time. Now, we have much to discuss today that comes from what is written in this chapter. Things that most of us have perhaps not considered. Now, the historical significance of this chapter is that, as Daryl Bach puts it, it's the story of Paul's final missionary swing through the Greco-Roman world. Now, Paul is mostly revisiting areas in which he, he had previous contact. He established some number of Jewish and Gentile believers. But <clears throat> as the trust in Yeshua is beginning to take root in, in foreign lands, what we see is this increasing polarization of those who embrace the truth of the gospel that Paul is teaching versus those who reject it. Now, such polarization causes not just discord, but it also causes division and separation. You know, it's fascinating um, that institutional Judeo-Christianity has at its core a, a stated desire for unity at almost any cost. And yet, the God that we worship has at his core a desire to divide, to elect, and to separate. Now the synagogue and the church doesn't seem to want to winnow the harvest. Rather, it seems to want to find ways to allow the wheat and the chaff to remain united. But our Lord constantly demands of his true followers to what? Be ye separate. So what is happening with the contentious division and separation we're reading about is that actually it's God's plan brought about in ways that most folks resist mightily. Now, what happens when something as new and impactful as the Gospel of Christ begins to take hold is that it can assume various forms, many of which were not intended, especially when the founding leadership isn't present to keep things on track, or as we see happening at the outset of chapter 19, <clears throat> people get only partial information about Yeshua and the good news, and they act on that, not realizing there's much more to know to get a fuller and more accurate picture. So in Acts 19, verses 2 through 7, we're taken aback when we read that there were a number of new believers in Ephesus that Paul encountered who had no idea that the Holy Spirit was to be an integral part of their faith experience. In fact, Luke says that some claimed that they had never even heard of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm compelled to assume that these particular new believers who said they knew nothing about a, a Holy Spirit were Gentiles, since Jews certainly would have least have known about the existence of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, even if they didn't understand what role he would play in their salvation. But this highlights several critical faith issues, so let's review them. The manner in which this ignorance of the Holy Spirit is framed is that these new believers 
had been immersed into the baptism of John, but they had not been immersed into the baptism of Jesus. Now first understand that speaking about being baptized into a particular person is a common Hebrew cultural expression. What's interesting is that we have foreign Gentiles uttering it. Now these Gentiles had to have learned about the way from Jews at synagogues. So whatever terms and expression they learned to define and explain their new faith would naturally be Hebrew terms and expressions since these concepts concepts simply didn't exist outside of Judaism. But this is also an, such excellent evidence of how misleading it is for us to speak of those who follow Yeshua in Paul's day as Christians or that the religion that they were following at that time was called Christianity. Now what makes this so misleading is that the church invariably sets up Judaism as the boogeyman who opposes Christianity. And that is because Judaism is a religion for the Jews while Christianity is a religion for the Gentiles. And in time this is precisely how it would be organized. But that time is not yet at the point we're at in the book of Acts. In fact, we shouldn't even look for such a thought in the entire New Testament because it's not there. This next phrase a rather phase of the uh, this next phase of the Jesus movement that would eventually result in a Gentile dominated entity called Christianity doesn't happen until several years after all the books that form the New Testament are completed. That is, Christianity existing as a named, a separate, a distinct religious institution that was led by Gentiles did not happen until sometime after the late 90s AD. So what we need to grasp is that the way, which consisted of Jews and Gentiles, was still being led by Jews, as we continue to see throughout the book of Acts. And they were still mostly meeting in synagogues. And they were perceived within Judaism as a sect of Judaism, and they were seen similarly by Gentile outsiders. Thus, when persecutions began to arise against the way, it was actually regarded as persecution against Jews and Judaism, since pagan Gentiles, as of yet, could make no real distinction between the way and other factions factions of Judaism. This is because, culturally, all the forms of Judaism, including including that of the way, looked about the same to Gentiles. It's a little like Islam is for us today. Because while within Islam there are long-held, well-understood distinctions among the various sects of Islam, and they war against one another over these distinctions, most non-Muslims don't understand those nuances or don't even know they exist. So we tend to lump all the sects together as one, and then we give them one overarching identity, Islam. And that's quite like the stage of development that Yeshua worship is at in Acts chapter 19. Now the second issue for this small group of new believers in Ephesus regarding being immersed into John but not into Christ is 
that we find it's not really about setting one against the other. That is, this is not that the new believers thought that you chose one name to be immersed in and rejected the other one. It's just that they didn't comprehend that John's baptism was not about salvation per se. Rather, it was a preparation for becoming saved. Now remember, the biblical concept of immersion was for a person to take on the qualities of whatever it was they were being immersed into. So, to be immersed into John meant that a person was absorbing, taking on whatever qualities that John preached and stood for. John was not the Savior. He was the prophet that announced that the Savior was about to reveal himself. So to make oneself ready for the Savior, John taught that the first step was to repent of sins. Then, when the Savior was made known, one was prepared to take step two, which was to accept the salvation in the name of the Savior, Yeshua. Now, although since the moment Yeshua revealed himself, the required baptism is now a single immersion, it's not two immersions. Nonetheless, we still cannot seek salvation until we first realize our sins and we repent of them. But how do we, do we repent of some, something if we just don't know we're doing anything wrong? How can we know what sin is and it is not? Jews generally knew what things were sins, although especially in the diaspora it had become generally watered down. But how about Gentiles? 1 John 3 verse 4 says this, Everyone who keeps sinning is violating Torah. Indeed, sin is violation of Torah. So, what is sin? You just heard it. The Apostle John says it clearly. It's the breaking of the Torah. For those who are somewhat new to Hebrew roots, I shall now quote the King James Bible. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. Pretty clear. So the New Testament definition of sin is the same as the Old Testament definition of sin, and it is violating the law. What law? Roman law? Obviously not. It's the only law that exists in the Bible, the law of Moses. The Apostle John wrote these words decades after Christ's era. So clearly he still thinks that the law remains as the standard for defining sin. Now we'll get back to that in a minute. But also notice something else interesting that Acts 19 points out. We cannot accept Christ as Savior and expect that to be effective for us. At the same time, we have no repentance of our sins. It works the other way around as well. We cannot repent of our sins, but yet not accept Christ as Savior and be saved. Repentance by itself does not save. Repentance is an admission of sins. But now, payment for those sins is required by God. So determining to be a better person, sinning no more, 
Now, while that's needed, it does not save. Repentance plus trusting Christ as our atonement for sins are needed. And ideally, they ought to occur in that correct order. Now, is that the Tom Bradford doctrine? Or a Hebrew Roots doctrine? Hardly. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11, through 11, we read this. Don't you know that unrighteous people will have no share in the kingdom of God? Don't delude yourselves. People who engage in sex before marriage, who worship idols, who engage in sex after marriage with someone other than their spouse, who engage in active or passive homosexuality, who steal, who are greedy, who get drunk, who assail people with contemptuous language, who rob, none of them will share in the kingdom of God. Now, some of you used to do these things, but you have cleansed yourselves. You have been set apart for God. You have come to be counted righteous through the power of the Lord Yeshua, the Messiah, and the Spirit of our God. Now, I want you to notice that this passage does not say that if you've ever done or identified yourself with any of these prohibited things, that you are forever excluded from the kingdom of God. In fact, Paul says that some of you used to do these things, but you've cleansed yourselves. What he's describing is repentance. Because repentance is not merely a thought process. It's not just a state of mind or an admission of the conscience. Rather, repentance means to actively, physically, Stop doing what's wrong to start doing what's right. Thus a person cannot be actively engaged in these things that Paul lists, which are all sins, of course, and grievous enough that the Lord may not accept you, and at the same time call upon Christ and think to count yourself as saved. I mean, repentance first. Then afterwards, salvation in Yeshua. No repentance, no salvation. Note that even though you have not repented, this doesn't mean that you can't sincerely believe that Yeshua lived and did what he did, said what he said. You can insist all day long that you believe in Christ. But if you continue to embrace those sins, refuse to see them for what they are instead of repenting from them, then you're probably not saved. As Paul said, do not deceive yourselves into thinking that you are saved if you're unrepentant. Now let me also nuance that a bit further. I don't want you to get any wrong ideas. We, of course, can repent from all of our sins, sincerely. Then we can accept Christ for who He is, sincerely, and be saved. But we can also still sin some of those same sins after our salvation. In fact, I think it's fair to say that most believers do. So do we we remain saved if that's the case? The issue is that we acknowledge those sins as sin. But we don't try to defend them as okay with God. In other words, in our weakness... We sometimes fall as believers. We fail. And we need to recognize it as such. The reality is 
that this is as much what Messiah died for as for the sins we committed before we came to trust in Him. Now let me address what might be the most contentious and sensitive issue in this regard for our day and age. Salvation and sexual immorality. Now while I cannot stand in God's place and judge anyone by everything the scriptures plainly say, one cannot be an unrepentant homosexual and be saved. One cannot glory in what the Lord calls sexual immorality and an abomination to him and still expect eternal life with God. Now, can a person have been formerly engaged in homosexuality or some other forms of sexual immorality and now renounces it and be saved? Yes. Can that same person possibly relapse, commit a serious act of sexual sin and fall on their knees before God and admit their sin and ask for his help to stop committing it and remain saved? Yes. Please understand, I'm I'm well aware that there are many other sins that Paul listed here that are only sexual sins that we must repent from to be a member of God's kingdom. However, because of the deteriorated state of modern Christianity, even some sects of Judaism, whereby many denominations now accept homosexuality and other biblically defined sexual deviances as okay in God's eyes, even speaking of them as good and normal and moral, this is the glaring issue of the early 21st century for believers, and it it must be rebuked. Rebuked not just for the sake of the health of the believing institution, but for the sake of those individuals who are deceived into falsely thinking that they're at peace with God while still embracing their sexual immorality. They may feel safe, but in fact, they are in the greatest eternal danger. Much of this is due to some church factions who are more interested in human tolerance and greater acceptance by the world than in divine truth. Now, brothers and sisters, those of us who've been in been charged with leadership in the body of Christ have been letting you down for a long time. We have been charged with teaching you God's word, helping you to observe it, and we've just not done so vigorously enough. It's our fault, it's my fault, that the world is falling to pieces and all sorts of sexual immorality because we have not had the courage to speak out boldly against it. We're supposed to be the keepers, the protectors of God's word, because he has set us apart for that purpose. And when we don't bother to even know God's word, or are we backed down due to societal pressures, any hope of secular society, or even God's people remembering God's word, diminishes greatly. Repentance of sins is mandatory before we can be saved in Messiah Yeshua. And we can't determine for ourselves what sin is and is not, because as human society evolves, so does humanity redefine right and wrong, good and evil, to suit us. Any doctrines 
that teaches that sin for me isn't sin for you. The idea being that the Holy Spirit customizes sin for each believer. That is probably one of the biggest culprits behind the collapse of sexual morality because it makes the definition of sin a moving target. The Lord, not his followers, defines sin. It does not, has not, never will change. And our source for an extensive, authoritative definition of sin is the Torah. Thus, now as this connects back to Acts chapter 19, we read that once Paul explained to these Ephesians that even though they had repented from their sins and were immersed in public profession of that, they had not received the Holy Spirit because they had not been immersed into Christ. The good news is that they quickly understood the deficiency. They were immersed into Yeshua by Paul. And the evidence of their sincere repentance, now their trust in Yeshua, was the visible coming of the Holy Spirit upon them. Well, let's reread part of Acts chapter 19. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. Follow along with me. We're going to be on page 1387. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, and we will start at verse 8. Verse 8. Shaul, that's Paul, went into the synagogue, and for three months he spoke out boldly, engaging in dialogue, trying to persuade people about the kingdom of God. But some began hardening themselves and refusing to listen. And when these started defaming the way before the whole synagogue, Shaul withdrew. He took the Talmudim, the disciples, with him, and he commenced holding daily dialogues in Tyrannus' yeshiva. This went on for two years so that everyone, both Jew and Greeks, living in the province of Asia, heard the message about the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. For instance... Handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were brought to sick people. They would recover from their ailments. Evil spirits would leave them. Then some of the Jewish exorcists who traveled from place to place tried to make use of the name of the Lord Yeshua in connection with people who had evil spirits. And they'd say, I exorcise you and then by the Yeshua that Shaul is proclaiming. Well, one time, seven sons of a Jewish Kohen Gadol, that's high priest, named Skeva, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered them. And it said, Now Yeshua I know, Shaul I recognize, but you, who are you? Then the man with the evil spirit fell upon them, overpowered them, gave them such a beating that they ran from the house, naked, bleeding. And when all this became known to the residents of Ephesus, Fear fell on all of them, Jews and Greeks alike. And the name of the Lord Yeshua came to be held in high regard. Many of those who had earlier made professions of faith now came and admitted publicly their evil deeds. And a considerable number of those who had engaged in occult practices threw their scrolls in a pile, burned them in public. And when they calculated the value of the scrolls, it came to 50,000 drachmas. Thus the message about the Lord continued in a powerful way to grow in influence. 
Sometime later, Shaul decided by the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem. After I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome. So he dispatched two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia. But he himself remained in the province of Asia for a while. It was at this time that a major furor arose concerning the way. There was a silversmith named Demetrius who manufactured from silver objects connected with the worship of the god Artemis. And he provided no small amount of work for the craftsmen. He called a meeting of them and of those engaged in similar trades. And he said, men, you understand that this line of business provides us our living. And you can see and hear for yourselves that not only here in Ephesus, but in practically the whole province of Asia, this Shaul has convinced and turned away a considerable crowd by saying that man-made gods aren't gods at all. Now the danger is not only that the reputation of our trade will suffer, but that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will come to be taken lightly. It could end up with the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia, and indeed throughout the whole world, being ignominiously brought down from her divine majesty. Well, hearing this, they were filled with rage, and they began bellowing, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was in an uproar. As one man, the mob rushed into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Shaul's traveling companions from Macedonia. Paul himself wanted to appear before the crowd, but the Talmudim wouldn't let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of his, sent a message begging him not to risk entering the theater. Well, meanwhile, some were shouting one thing, others something else, because the assembly was in complete confusion. Great majority didn't even know why they were there. Some of the crowd explained the situation to Alexander, whom the Jews had pushed to the front. So Alexander motioned for silence, hoping to make a defense speech to the people, but as soon as they recognized he was a Jew, they began bellowing in unison, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! They kept it up for about two hours. At last, the city clerk was able to quiet the crowd. Men of Ephesus, he said, is there anyone who doesn't know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone which fell from the sky? Now, since this is beyond dispute, you'd better calm down and not do anything rash. For you have brought these men here who've neither robbed the temple nor insulted your goddess. So if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, judges are there, let them bring charges and countercharges. But if there is something more you want, it will have to be settled in a lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being accused of rioting on account of what has happened today. There is no justification for it. And if we are asked, we will be unable to give any reasonable explanation for this disorderly gathering. And with these words, he dismissed the assembly. Paul was given a, a relatively long time, three months, to persuade the members of this particular synagogue in Ephesus before an all too familiar pattern of events began to unfold. Now in Thessalonica, he had only three weeks before the trouble started. Many believe Paul 
but many more hardened their hearts against the gospel message. Well, when that happened, Paul took the bold path of not only leaving that synagogue, but even taking with him a number of members who trusted in Yeshua. He essentially moved his new congregation into a building right next door to the synagogue. Now, I'm not sure how wise that was, but I imagine availability had something to do with it. The building was apparently some type of a school or a lecture hall owned by a fellow named Tyrannus. We don't know whether he was a Gentile or a Jew. Therefore, I think it is highly speculative in our complete Jewish Bible to call this place a yeshiva. Now, a yeshiva is essentially a Jewish religious school, usually meant for training up rabbis. Now, even so, Paul spent two years in this place teaching and preaching. And I'm going to remind you that just because Paul stayed in Ephesus for over two years doesn't mean that evangelizing in other places came to a halt. And we've learned in earlier chapters that other believers were roaming around presenting the gospel. Apparently all that they taught wasn't necessarily complete or correct. Well, verses 11 and 12 tell us something that is not just hard to understand, it's even harder to accept for modern day believers. It seems that ordinary cloth items that Paul touched were taken to sick people. They were healed by them. In some cases, it was enough to exercise demons from people. What are we to make out of this? First, let's go back to a God principle that we learned in the Torah. Ritual purity and impurity are contagious. Even holiness can be transmitted from person to person, person to object, object to object, we find something similar happening with Yeshua. In Matthew 9, 20-22, a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years approached him from behind and touched the tzitzit, that's the fringes, on his robe. For she said to herself, If I can only touch his robe, I'll be healed. Yeshua turned and saw her and said, Courage, daughter, your trust has healed you. And she was instantly healed. Now we also read of this strange sequence of events in 2 Kings. In 2 Kings 4, 29-34, we read this. <clears throat> then Elisha said to Gehazi, Get dressed for action. Take my staff in your hand and be on your way. If you meet anyone, don't greet him. If anyone greets you, don't answer. And lay my staff on the child's face. Now the mother of the child said, As Adonai lives and as you live, I will not leave you. He got up and he followed her. Gehazi went on ahead of them and laid the staff on the child's face. But there was no sound or sign of life. So he went back to Elisha and he told him, child didn't wake up. And when Elisha reached the house, there was the child, dead, laid on the bed. He went in, shut the door on the two of them, and he prayed to Adonai. And then he got up on the bed, and he lay on top of the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, his hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself out on the child, his flesh began to grow warm. So first off, there was a belief among Jews that objects touched by a holy man could become infected 
by his healing power and be transmitted to them. Now, while part of this was pure superstition, another part of this belief was based in fact, and it came from the Torah. But second, Luke insists that this actually happened. Paul came in contact with a cloth, someone used it to get healed, and it worked. What happened was not a misinterpretation of events. In all cases, of course, this was God doing the miraculous healings, not actually humans or or objects. But what God was doing from a human perspective was operating within a culture who looked for such supernatural power to be exhibited in certain expected ways. And the purpose of those strange miracles was always to teach and persuade people about God's power and presence. I mean, you know, we in the West tend to be a bit allergic to any kind of potential miracle that seems out of the ordinary from our cultural perspective. But when God is operating in Africa or in the South American jungles or any place that's not at all Western, Why would he not do things within their cultural perspective so that real understanding could happen? Well, interestingly, interestingly, Luke tells us about some Jewish exorcists. And this, no doubt, is recorded here as a means to contrast what they did with what Paul did. And it seems that what these seven exorcists did was looked upon by them and by the public as essentially the same as what Paul did. In fact, in the Ephesian culture, a culture that abounded in magic and sorcery, no doubt many viewed Paul as an exorcist. So what we are witnessing is a sort of one-sided rivalry playing out. Paul was healing and expelling demons, something that these seven sons of Sceva did professionally, and they made a, a lucrative income from it. They certainly could not ignore the competition. Now, before we discuss this, let me clear something up. Many Bibles will say that the father of these seven exorcists was a Jewish high priest. That's incorrect. The Greek word is archiarius, and it more means chief priest as opposed to high priest. So whatever this Jewish man, Skeva, was a priest of, he was one of the upper echelon of priests. This did not intend to refer to the Hebrew high priest that served at the temple in Jerusalem, or even likely one of the more senior common priests. This is especially proved that he was apparently a local. And there's no chance that a chief priest of the Jerusalem temple could live so far away in Ephesus. Well, now the fun starts. These seven Jewish exorcists have been watching. And they see that the name that Paul calls upon to heal and expel demons is Yeshua. These exorcists aren't proud. You know, if it works, use it. In exorcism, the correct use of a powerful name is vital. It is important as both the power that expels demons and as discovering the name of the demon that inhabits that host. But when they called on Yeshua's name to expel a demon, the demon wasn't terribly impressed. In fact, the demon acknowledges that he was aware of Yeshua and of Paul and implies that had Paul ordered him out, he would have gone. But he had no idea who these seven were, 
So the thought is that he had no intention of doing what these exorcists say just because they pronounce the same name. Thus, in reality, neither Yeshua's nor Paul's name are invoked over the possessed person. and Instead, the demon's host jumps on these unwitting exorcists and beats them to a pulp. In fact, he tears the clothes off, which would have marked them with great shame. Now let's pause here for a moment. By this time in history, a great deal of syncretism had crept into the religious lives of the Jewish diaspora. That is, much pagan mysticism and magic had infiltrated otherwise holy and pure Torah practices. Why? Usually because it was profitable, or it was convenient in some way or another. There is ample evidence of just how infected with paganism the Judaism had become by looking at the sarcophagi of many venerable rabbis buried in a system of burial caves at a place called Beit Sharim in Israel. I've taken many people there. We find their tombs decorated not only with menorahs, but also occult symbols. How did this happen? It was yet another devastating result of the Babylonian exile. Roughly 95% of the Jews who went into exile to Babylon decided on their own free will not to return to the Holy Land, but rather to continue their lives in the Gentile world. Now, by now, five centuries had passed since the Jews were freed by Persian King Cyrus. The Jews' numbers had greatly increased. They had scattered all over Asia to make their way in life, and many found prosperity and status. In other words, they liked living amongst Gentiles, and they, they enjoyed all the benefits that it brought to them. But the bargain was more costly than they would ever know. If they were going to live among Gentiles and profit from it economically, compromise was essential. Now, many Jews refused compromise. Many more embraced it. Skeva and his seven Jewish exorcist sons are a perfect example of this syncretism and blending of Jewish with Gentile identities. One of their great compromises was to adopt, or at least to openly condone, the morals, ethics, and religious practices of their Gentile neighbors. These religious practices inevitably involve sorcery. To have not done so would, of course, have been seen by Gentiles as the Jews being aloof, very unfriendly. Who'd want to associate with someone like that? Well, pockets of more pious Jews were everywhere among the myriad Gentile, uh, rather Jewish settlements. But they were only pockets. The majority chose the easier, more practical route. And as time passed, the gap between Jewish life and Gentile life shrunk. Because too much difference interfered with political correctness and with social acceptance. Now, I'm not going to go any further with that line of thought. Because <laughs> if you want to understand it better, just simply look around you today. Christianity and a large segments of Judaism have determined that compromise with the world is a, a better course of action than being separate from the world and bringing with it the abuses and the disdain and economic advantages 
that being different and, and being intolerant of sin and immorality always does. You know, the church itself is full of pagan symbols that have been borrowed and Christianized. The two most holy days of the year for Christians were originally pagan holy days and many of the symbols and icons that are used to this day as centerpieces of these holidays are the same ones used by the pagans before these days were borrowed and renamed. Well, the superstitious Ephesians were greatly impressed with Paul and similarly impressed with the demon's violent reaction upon these seven Jewish exorcists all because of the name Yeshua. This got their attention, Jews and Greeks. So they began to venerate our Savior's holy name. Not always for the right reasons, unfortunately. Now what we see happen starting in verse 18 is truly awesome. A reverent fear of Yeshua begins to spread. Finally, finally, lifestyle begins to catch up and match profession of faith in Messiah. Seems to have taken these strange healings from objects that Paul contacted along with the comically scary scene of these seven Jewish exorcists getting dissembled by an unimpressed demon for God to make the point that his son Yeshua was powerful, that he was present, and that none could match him. And rightfully, After witnessing these happenings, the local believers came and admitted their sins and they repented. They went so far as to take their precious books of occult magic, which was an expensive staple of Ephesian households, and throw them into a pile and burn them. Thus they were making a public profession that they were through with sorcery. But I also want to point out that although these believers who brought these magic books to destroy them were sincere followers of Yeshua, at least so far as we know, they were probably what we today might label as baby Christians. Until now, they simply had never connected faith in Christ with God's commandment to not participate in sorcery. Because sorcery in Ephesus was much a normal part of daily life as stopping to buy gasoline as to ours. Now, not everyone would have appreciated such a display because essentially these believers were dramatically renouncing the accepted lifestyle of most of the citizens of Ephesus. Now, we're told that the value of these books amounted to 50,000 drachmas. To give you some idea of how much money this was, generally one drachma was the pay for one day's labor. This was a lot of money. Now, as a result of all this turmoil, attention, and drama, contrary to what one might think ought to happen, the gospel began to spread even more powerfully. I've said it before, I'm afraid it's not terribly comforting, but the gospel of Christ is never more effective, nor does it spread more rapidly than when the body of believers is under tribulation. We'll continue with Acts chapter 19 next time.